Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today my guest is Alexandros Marinos. Alex has a PhD in computer science, and he is the founder and CEO of Belena, a technology startup related to the world of edge computing and the so-called Internet of Things. I guess you could say that we spent most of the conversation discussing how complex systems are organized. Alex talked about how he thinks about the organizational structure of his own company and how organizational structures impact group dynamics, growth, conflicts of interest, and the ability to innovate. We talked about how systems thinking can be used to understand the behavior of different kinds of organizations with different internal structures. And one interesting area Alex provided commentary and analysis on towards the end is how to make sense of the behavior of large institutional organizations. For example, something like the Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, which has been very important in influencing how the global COVID-19 pandemic has played out, at least here in the U.S. If you're interested in complex systems like human organizations, how the internal structure structures of different organizations influence what they do and how they behave, and why human organizations can sometimes behave in deranged ways, this episode will be of interest to you. As always, if you enjoy the content that I'm providing, please like, share, and subscribe. Uh, a big way that you can help support the podcast is to simply tell your friends or your family about it if you think they'll be interested in it. You can also give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and you can sign up for my free Minded Matter newsletter on Substack. All of this will be linked to in the episode description. This episode is supported in part by Athletic Greens. Their main product, AG1, is a comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition product containing 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food sourced ingredients with less than one gram of sugar per serving, no nasty chemicals or artificial anything. It's gluten and dairy free and compatible with paleo, vegan, vegetarian, and ketogenic diets. AG1 is a quick and convenient way to supplement your diet to help ensure your body is getting the nutrients it needs. It comes in powder form and you can make Mix it in water and drink it, or you can put it into a smoothie or a shake or something like that. I mix it into water and drink it with the first meal of each day, and it's super convenient. If you go to athleticgreens.com slash mindandmatter, Athletic Greens will give you a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Their vitamin D product comes in tincture form, so you just take one drop each day. A large fraction of the population is actually vitamin D deficient, especially in winter months when we get less sun exposure, and vitamin D is super important for the proper function of the immune system and for a variety of other things. And there's even evidence indicating that vitamin D deficiency is correlated with more severe cases of COVID-19 in those who get infected. Every time I go into the doctor each year for a checkup, I'm always told that vitamin D deficiency is very common and I should be supplementing on a daily basis. So visit athleticgreens.com slash mindedmatter or click the link in the episode description. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Alexandros Marinos. Alexandros Marinos, how are you? Hi, how's it going? Good, good. Um, it's good to see you. We've talked briefly once before. We're both based out of Seattle. Can you start off by just telling everyone w what your background is? Yeah, so uh, I'm uh, I'm the CEO and founder of uh, Belena, which does uh, edge computing. 
Um, I've been running this company uh, for about, uh, you know, almost getting close to a decade now. Uh, we're sort of, you know, trying to do what Amazon did for cloud computing for, you know, uh, devices that are out in the world but are not necessarily uh, your mobile phone. Um, and I guess of, of late, I've been using some of the reasoning tools we've been uh, developing inside the lineup to understand this, so this the very fractured space of uh, edge computing uh, to something that's kind of come in and affected us and affected supply chains for us as well, which is uh, the pandemic. Um, so uh, I guess that's how that's how we we came in contact. Hmm. So we're going to do a lot of discussion, I think, about how you think about organizational structure and and how your company is structured, maybe not so much about the actual technology and what you guys do per se, um, but can you, can you give people some kind of anchor there? So, so what is edge computing and what, what kind of products or services do you guys actually provide your clients? Yeah, so basically, if you look around you, there's uh, you know, more and more computers, um, and not all of them are uh, you know, your phone or your laptop or something that has a user on them all the time, right? They are appliances. They are you know, uh, anything from a drone to a self-driving car, a thermostat to, uh, you know, some building monitoring uh, solution, uh, you know, smart cameras, all sorts of things that are that we put in our houses, but also, you know, in industry, in, uh, in commercial settings, um, we've just been deploying all this technology and we did, don't have very good tools on how to make that easy to do for one and for another to keep them up to date and, and you know, do all the things that we do for laptops and phones and cloud computing. So that's what uh, Balena does. We, we have a lot of customers that have you know, from 100 to tens of thousands of devices, um, and they need to manage them as a fleet, right? Not just like as one device, but like as a swarm. Mm-hmm. Um, and we just make all of the infrastructure, all the plumbing. We do all the you know unsexy work to to make our customers uh, able to sort of do the thing that they specifically want to do on top of that uh, technology. I see. So you guys are a startup that writes software to help to help people manage fleets of machines. Yep. Interesting. So in your Twitter bio, it says uh, systems thinking is the way to a positive sum civilization. So <laughs> I would like you to, to unpack that for us. What is systems thinking in contrast to other types of thinking? And what, what does it mean when you say positive sum civilization? Yeah. So um I can explain systems thinking. The, the best way I have to explain system thinking off the top of my head is um, Tesla. Uh, it's a company I've been investigating a lot. And you can see the sort of the conflict of points of view in the conversation around Tesla, right? So there's some people that really get it uh, and some people that really don't get it. <laughs> More so a few years back before the numbers are come in fully. Um, so what's the, what's the interesting thing about Tesla is that if you model it on a spreadsheet, right? You're like, okay, well, you know, what are the revenues and how fast are they growing? And, you know, what's the market share? Um, you come up with one set of conclusions. But if you look at something else, which is like all the feedback loops that are built into that company, uh, you come up with a different set of conclusions. For instance, um, they gather data on their motors, right? That they have on their cars about all sorts of like deep physics performance because they're the first sort of electric motor that's been deployed at the scale. Um, they gather that data, they feed it into the algorithms. Uh, those algorithms optimize the operation of those motors, which they put back down into their devices, uh, into their cars, sorry, uh, which are devices, <laughs> they qualify for well. Um, um, and then that improves the performance of the vehicle. Now, improving, improving how well a motor can use energy means you need 
fewer batteries to a car to go the same distance. Having fewer batteries means you have less weight, which means you have even fewer batteries, right? So there's all of these reinforcing feedback loops. And then the, the better you make your car, the cheaper you make your car, the more cars you sell, the more data you have, the better training you do to your motors, and you feed that loop back in there again. Um, and, and so I've got uh, a thread somewhere where I've like, uh, listed out 10 or 15 of these uh, feedback loops that are feeding into each other, right? Now, if you put that on a spreadsheet, again, uh, anything that is uh, uh, cumulative will look pretty weak uh, in the early phase, right? If you have a nice linear growth, you're like, wow, that looks amazing. If you look at, at something that goes like this, in the early phases, you could confuse yourself for thinking it's going nowhere while it's building up all this internal strength. It, that product did not sort of appear out of nowhere. It had to be built first for it to, to deliver its, its value. So it's really about... Um, System thinking is really th thinking about things and their interaction with each other uh, and thinking really about the composition and the interactions of things rather than just uh, taking a numerical target, seeing how you, you hit it. You know, that could help, right? Thermostat is essentially a feedback loop that looks at temperature and what the desired temperature is and adjusts to hit that continuously. Um, but, uh, you know, when you, when you go down that linear path uh, of, of, of modeling things and saying like, okay, well, it's, it's sold this much, uh, how much next year? And you like, okay, well now 10 years in the future, it's like, whoa, uh, it's bad paradigms. Basically. So um, again, I, I think of systems as, you know, these, these sort of holistic things. And I don't sort of, I know when I think of that word, you know, kind of leads you somewhere else. But I think of, of when you make something, you think of it as a system, you, it means you can build a lot of strength in it and a lot of resilience as well. So by resilience, I mean uh, something like anti-fragility actually is, is a better word. Um, where it responds to challenge by getting better, right? That's kind of what you want. You want something that uh, won't crumble under pressure, but it will actually uh, respond creatively and, and, and become even better. So um, that's kind of a systems thinking way of, of building a company, uh, which sort of applies uh, decently well to how uh, Bolina has been uh, getting around as well. Um, now let's talk about positive stuff, right? So. <laughs> Uh, these are the games that we play, right? So when you build a company, you design it top down. Like there's one designer, of course, with large organizations that gets watered down. Um, but, you know, when people cooperate, that there's no sort of higher authority to tell them, you know, uh, what to do. Um, so game theory sort of comes to play. Um, and sort of in, in terms of interactions with people, you can have uh, zero-sum games, like, you know, there's a pie, how much everybody gets out of the pie, right? A lot of that thinking. But because when there is zero-sum thinking, uh, people tend to get into a very competitive mindset, you get also get negative-sum games, right? Which are games that, you know, you're like, well, if I destroy half the pie, I get to get three quarters of what's left, and you get only one quarter, right? And that's better for me. It's worse for everybody else, right? Because if there's, like, four four people in the, in the game, uh, I get to, like, get two of them out of the game, destroy half the pie, get three quarters of the pie rather than, uh, sorry, uh, three eighths, let's say, of the pie that's left. Um, uh, and somebody else gets one quarter. So I'm better off at the expense of everybody else, right? That's kind of a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. uh, sorry, negative-sum game. So, uh, but zero-sum games tend to become uh, negative just because of the, of the, of the tension. Uh, whereas positive-sum games uh, is the opposite. It's like where our collaboration makes something, makes both of us richer, makes both of us better off. I see. So zero sum is when I win, you lose. 
So for every winner, there's a loser. Negative sum is everyone loses. It's just a matter of who loses the least <laughs> or the most, but we all lose something. And positive sum is the opposite, where at the end of the game, everyone has come out ahead who's playing it. Uh, that's uh, even even better. It's an even better kind of uh, positive sum game. It's all money win win. Strictly speaking, for positive sum, there just has to be more of value at the end and the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, but it tends to correlate very well with Omni Win Win, which is like everybody who participates wins. Mm -hmm. And so when, when you were describing things like systems and what systems thinking is, it seems to me that the important, uh, important things to think about here, to use your Tesla example, are uh, sensors and, and negative feedback loops. So, so when you were describing the Tesla example, what you're really saying is they have, in this case, internal sensors, sensors that are detecting and measuring something about the uh, the insides of this product. Um, and of course, there are external sensors as well. The company has to sense what's going out in the market um, through various mechanisms. And there are different kinds of feedback loops that one can build that are connected to these sensors that allow you to that allow you to do things, to say it abstractly. So when you're thinking about systems in this way, feedback loops, sensors, and when you're thinking about constructing an organization, that is going to result in a positive sums dynamics. How how do you actually do that when you're constructing a company and and sort of designing how people are going to interact with each other? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, so this is actually at the at the bottom of how Balena is, is constructed. Um, so is is designed uh, at least the principle that we started with. We've been iterating on that. Um, but I think the real inspiration came from, uh, from uh, my wife. So she, uh, is, uh, was working full time as a journalist. Um, and she was like at a pretty traditional media company. Um, and one thing that was really interesting to me from the story she was telling me is that she was on the beat, right? She was talking to, um, the people with the stories, but it was a trade publication, which is important because the people you're writing the stories about are the people that are reading your story. Right, you're talking to your audience basically, and picking out you know which companies have good uh, have good stories, etc. Um, and so she had a very good sense of the company and the market and the product and how it needed to be. So she was saying, you know, we need to do this, we need to do that, right? Because you just when you talk, they're like, oh yeah, I like this, I didn't like that. But you you get the sense. Um, and and weirdly enough, um, that. Uh, was not getting to the hires, right? So she was like on her own coding some stuff and doing visualizations with data for her for, for her stories, but like nobody else was paying any attention. Um, and it just baffled me that you have this massive company, right? Where the frontline people, the people who actually have access to the outside world, there was no process by which, you know, the sensors, like you say, right? They have no way of actually being heard systemically or organizationally from the top. It might happen that, you know, she might tell her manager and the manager might tell the manager and like, whatever, but that's like almost an accident, right? Because you have a chain of uh, where anyone like cutting the signal means that the signal doesn't get to the top. You have like five people and they all have to agree for something to go to the top. Usually it gets beautified, right? Usually everybody adds their own layer of polish and in the end there's nothing to do, what, what goes off top has nothing to do with what actually started that far. Um, even the fact that we think of the, the, the tree, right? And we talk about the bottom, uh, the people who have all of the actual like real world experience is, is really problematic. And that's basically baked into how companies are structured. There's no uh, way around that problem. Uh, if you if you stay with a hierarchy, you just add abstractions and abstractions and abstractions until the management basically has no idea 
what's happening uh, at the at the, at the front line. Um, and you know, there's there's countermeasures. You know, the Japanese have like this kind of management by walking around concept, which is like actually get to the front lines. But you know, these are countermeasures to to the the, the, the systemic issue. Um, okay, so seeing that, I I, I basically. Uh, I was like, yeah, well, that's that's completely stupid, and we shouldn't do. That. <laughs> so we did a few things actually. So so one of the things that we did is we we structured um, the information flow of the company before we structured the people. Right. So instead of saying like we're going to have a people uh, like a, a tree uh, of people, it's going to look roughly like the Prussian army looked like in the nineteenth century, um, because that's exactly what we're doing. Right. The creative, you know, work uh, in in the twenty first is just about. Uh, like you know, building an army unit in the nineteenth, um, and uh, but, so we said first, like, how does information flow, right? So we have what we call the surface, which is sort of what our customers see, like everything that we put out there, everything that we need to support, everything that we're responsible for, um, and from that we get signals, right? We get all these uh, sensors, like you described. Um, it could be support, it could be from a sales conversation, it could be from social media, it could be from uh, our machines, our servers themselves, like <laughs> complaining about something going on. Um, and even better when you get the same signal from multiple places, right? That's kind of not, now you're starting to get, you know, not only you can see something, you can smell it, right? You can hear it as well. Like that's definitely real uh, if you're getting it from multiple, multiple sites. Um, and that's where we get uh, patterns, right? Like something is, is happening, which is like robust. Um, and, and, and that's what drives our brainstorming process. So, so we, we think of uh, what we call improvements. Uh, which we then sort of implement in a somewhat much more standard sort of continuous, uh, continuous integration, continuous deployment, um, agile uh, kind of way, which is the other side of the right. It's the it's the uh, actuator, right? It's you can you can have a sensor and you can have like the, the the reasoning, but you have to also be able to affect reality, right? So that's kind of your your implementation deployment arm. Um, and when we're done, we basically change the surface. We're back where we started. Um, which means a couple of things, actually. It means we can actually then walk backwards and go where the original signal started and say, hey, remember this thing you told us about two months ago? Uh, we fixed it. Do you want to see if it works for you? It's there, right? Uh, this just blows people's mind when we do that. Like, it's the sort of thing you just can't do unless you you build things exactly this way. Um, the other thing is that we can iterate, right? Now we've learned. We've, we've made a step so we can see what the next step of feedback is. Um, and that doesn't mean necessarily that we are always uh, acting as a greedy algorithm, just like doing one step at a time based on what uh, customers tell us. We can always inject a vision. We can always just have an idea based on like a lot of input over you know the depth of time. Just something clicks. Uh, what it means though is that when you actually deliver that, it's still subject to the same uh, feedback that will uh, make it make sense also for our customers because you're not going to nail it the first time, right? Steve Jobs did not nail the iPhone. They've got copy paste. Therefore, they didn't have an app store. Right, you learn these things on on the fly. So, by starting with that information flow, then we build uh, like a, a, a human sort of hierarchy on top of that, which is very very likely because actually it turns out when you have a lot of information structure, you need less uh, hierarchy, uh, which is counterintuitive. But um, it's you know Bitcoin is kind of the extreme, like a ton of information structure, no hierarchy, mm. uh, or almost no hierarchy. Right, so we're not that far away in that in that continuum, but we're in that direction. So. You said something, I want to try and re reiterate some of that to help people wrap their heads around it. So you said something interesting um, a moment ago. You were talking about how if you've got multiple different kinds of sensors that are collecting information through different modalities, 
that this can help you identify real patterns more robustly. And that immediate, so my background's in neuroscience, that immediately just right. reminded me of something that most neuroscientists are very well, well aware of, which is the, the idea of multimodal integration. So one of the key things that our brains do to help us figure out what's actually going on outside of our bodies and then to um, build some kind of adaptive response to it in our behavior is multimodal integration, right? So I have information that comes into my eyeballs. I have information that comes into my ears. I have information that comes in through my fingertips, right? I can touch, I can smell, I can taste, et cetera, et cetera. And when all of these things are in agreement, that tells you, okay, there's very clearly something out there when all those senses uh, you know, are congruent. If there's a mismatch, right? If I see something out of the corner of my eye, but I turn and it's not there and I didn't hear anything and I don't smell anything and so, and so forth, it tells you that signal is wrong. So mm-hmm. in what sense are you building sort of these multimodal sensors into your organization? It sounded like maybe you have yep. ways of doing this with respect to things like customer service. Yeah, that's that's exactly the the model, and really, it's kind of fascinating because um, I've spent a lot of time working uh, around ideas on, on Goodhart's law, which is like when you get a metric and then you try to make it a target, it stops being a good metric. Um, so that's kind of the traditional way organizations work, like with commissions or whatever. That's how they try to uh, steer the their 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 teams and and, and uh, direction. Um, but these things are fragile, right? So so I've been always asking myself this question: of How does an organization solve, you know, difficult sense-making questions in, in such a polluted environment. Um, and what I came up with is, is, is exactly what you say. Um, th- this concept exists in neuroscience. It exists in astronomy. There's multi-messenger astronomy, right? If you see it in the gravity waves and you see it in light and you see it in the, in the uh, um, just like the, for the four fundamental powers, basically, uh, uh, forces are telling you the same thing. It's a real thing. But it's in so many places. It, uh, it's, you know, there's triangulation uh, in social science. There is... Um, I, I'm forgetting now, there's, I had found so many examples. I was like, okay, you know, or hedge funds, right? They use what they call alternative data, right? Like, which is like drones flying over parking lots or like whatever. And they combine that with other data, right? So, so again, you get this exactly the same pattern. It's like, okay, this isn't by chance, right? This is something that is a deep pattern that exists um, in, in, has been discovered over and over again from nature to various fields uh, in, in the real world. Um, so that's exactly the time we're trying to, uh, to copy, um, to, to be inspired from. And, and yeah, so, so basically every interaction we have with the outside world is interaction itself. Like we try to help a customer, let's say with a support problem, but we also do what we call teardown afterwards, which is like, we try to find what this is an instance of, right? What, you know, if, if somebody says like, how do I secure uh, my application, right? Uh, you know, this is customer is, is confused about security, right? That could happen on Twitter too. That could happen in our forums. That could happen in whatever. Or they could say like your, your, uh, your, your pipe, your, your, your build pipeline, whatever, it doesn't really matter what that is, um, is slow, right? We could see that from our server logs. We could hear it from support. Some, some big customer could call up, you know, their, their uh, customer success uh, person to, to discuss this. Like we could, again, it could be popping up all over the place. And the more it pops up, the more we know it, it, we should pay attention. But it's, it's the same, it's the same pattern. I see. So one of the things that's interesting, so so we've sort of been starting to discuss how you've organized your company. And I, I want to talk more about that. But there's also a, just like, like a very basic and pervasive thing that you see seemingly across all companies, which is in the beginning when they are small, 
um, you know, people will describe a startup as being agile or nimble. They can move quick. They can do things very quickly and creatively. And as companies grow, in almost all cases, they basically get slower and they get worse at decision making, at least in in some ways. Yep. So, what exactly? So, so, A, do you think that's true? And B, what is the reason for that in terms of organization? And what does it have to do with things like Dunbar's number that, that I know you've talked about? So I think it is true. I don't think it's inevitable. Uh, or at least yeah. I hope it's not inevitable. Um, and the, the point is, as companies grow, um, you know, w- 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 when a team is small, they do what we describe organic, right? You just hear a bunch of things. Like, there's five people. Like, you know, it's a startup in the garage, right? Like that's, you know, you see things, you connect things that you wouldn't have connected. It's not your department, but there is no department. So who cares if it's not your department? You just saw a thing. You might stop somebody to talk about it. You may get an idea. That's how it works, right? But as you grow, and this is, I think, where the problem is, we, 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 nobody can know everybody anymore, right? In the company, that's the 150 uh, people, Dunbar's number, which is like the, so theoretical, you know, the hypothesized sort of limit for the the, the, pre, the the early human tribes, like that was about as big as we hypothesized they could get, because that's about how well our brain does in tracking, you know, distinct people and and their mental states. Um, so once you once you get beyond that, you start to lose track now. Like there's people who come and go into the company you don't you never really talk to. Um, there's things happening, you do a thing and then, you know, you, you go halfway through and somebody says, no, that other person is working on that. Don't work on this. You know, there's like information transfer uh, issues, there's coordination issues. And then it starts to feel more like politics because now you're actually starting to negotiate internally rather than actually trying to build a thing. Um, and, and, you know, the organizational structures we have are basically it's our attempts to uh, resolve this issue. I don't think we're doing very well, uh, which is, Counterintuitive, I think a lot of people will say, you know, like we have quite advanced sort of management, you know, we've got all the MBAs and all of that stuff. Um, but where's the control group? You know, <laughs> how do we know this is working if we don't know what else there is? Um, it very well could be that our best companies are working in spite of the structure, not because of it. Um, so, so that definitely is a thing. Uh, and, and I think number, numbers never comes into it. And I think the escape from that is to, take this core dynamic that occurs naturally with small groups and build infrastructure that build tooling basically for the team to be able to continue to operate uh, in that mode as the team grows without needing to track everybody, like to, to, to institutionalize that loop, um, you know, before it kind of fades away. I see. So let me see if I, if I've got this, basically what you're saying is, uh, tribes, small tribes, lower than Dunbar's number, which is just this sort of um, abstract number that's supposed to capture the idea that there's only so many people you can really know or be reasonably good acquaintances with, right? We all have memory limitations. I can't know more than 50 or 100 or 150 or 200 people, whatever it is. As soon as your organization gets bigger than that, you kind of get these silos and it just fundamentally changes the architecture by which information flows from person to person. So what you're saying is, that you hypothesize at least, or maybe you're, this is what you do inside your company, you can use tech to build communication tools such that when the group and the organization gets bigger than Dunbar's number, you can continue to behave like that small tribe in the startup anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, something will get lost, right? The, the, to me, the, yeah, it's, it's, it's a great summary. Um, the, 
we faced a we faced a dilemma at some point a couple of years ago because I I kind of saw that some things were going in the traditional direction, right? And and I kind of said, well, look, um, I basically showed them a diagram which is exactly what you described, right? The the bigger you know you can be nimble or you can be uh, big and and it's kind of like a, a trade off. Um, and I was saying, you know, why can't we use our, you know, our size? I think we had just raised a round. We had, you know, had money in the bank and we had some, some optionality. Uh, why can't we use our newfound funding to become faster rather than slow? You know, because I even think saying that we want to maintain the original, uh, you know, speed um, is defeatist. You're kind of saying like, we're either going to like stay as we are or going to get worse. Like that's kind of what we are mm. playing with. And I'm saying, why not get faster? You know, like, uh, and then I, I found out some, Fun, fun fact that it's like, um, I still need to confirm this, but I, I choose to believe it was true. Uh, Henry Ford, apparently in, in the height of his power at, at Ford, had 10,000 tool makers inside Ford, right? Like these are not people who are making cars. There was, there were people who were making tools for the people who were making cars, mm. right? So this investment in the meta, this investment in how we do things, not just accepting, uh, you know, Google's management playbook at a startup, which is like what everybody does and it makes no sense. Uh, but actually, um, just saying, you know, um, why do we do what we do this way and, and what is the right way to do it? Uh, and investing in improving that um, is, again, very counterintuitive. It hurts your metrics in the short term. You're not going to look good because that money is not going to, you know, sales or whatever. Um, but in the long run, uh, and this is maybe where the space we're in is helpful because edge computing is so brutal. Uh, you, you either, you know, many or most of the companies really that have tried to do what we do have died. And, or if they're large companies, a step back. Uh, it's kind of very interesting because it requires a lot of integration and just a lot of patience to build the technology just right. Um, so I think that has worked. That's, that's where, you know, our DNA from uh, what we are working on has helped us adopt this long-term mindset. And, and that has helped us sort of invest in the actual way that we, uh, that we work. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of what you're saying, so so it, it sort of reminds me the way that many, I've met many people, I live in Seattle after all, who have worked at Amazon. And, you know, a big thing you always hear about Amazon when people talk about why it, it became what it is, is that there's internally this, this very big emphasis on internal tooling. So sort of like your Henry Ford example, there's a lot of people building tools for the car makers, so to speak. And a lot of the, you know, treating internal uh, products used internal uh, tools used by employees as if they are customer facing products and sort of taking the same amount of, of um, diligence and and care that you would take for the customer product for building these products um, is that something you're doing so so maybe just a question that leads into this is how do you guys like actually just informally communicate in the company are you using slack and other tools or are you building your own software for doing this in a new kind of way um, yeah, so so that's definitely uh, to be honest internally now, Belena, uh, in terms of your your Amazon example, um, I've taken a very hard line position of if you're not building a product, you're not building anything, right? Like because there's so many people that's like, oh, I'm going to build a process and it's going to be a wiki and you know just going to ask me and I'm like yeah, we've seen this a hundred times. You build that thing and then it becomes this haunted mess. But like it's not no 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 look over there, you know like this tribal knowledge is kind of diffuse and kind of sort of works, but but will rot, right? So if you don't get it to the plateau of being an actual product, like with a front end, with documentation, with whatever it is that it takes to, to hit a steady state where you know it's not going to start 
you know, rotting, um, that's the, that's the level we got to hit. Um, so that's, that's definitely a, a thing that I, you know, I, I have high conviction on and, and uh, Amazon is doing a good job of. Um, beyond, uh, beyond that, uh, so what was the second part of the question? There was a, well, yeah. well, to what extent are you guys building your own oh, right. communication yes. tools? Right, right. So, so in order to do that, what was really interesting to me um, was that, so to, 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 to build this way of working, right, where I said we structure information uh, first, uh, initially we were just integrating a bunch of tools, right? So we have, you know, uh, something like Slack, something like uh, Salesforce, something like Zendo, something like uh, whatever. And I had two big meetings at one point, one with the, with the customer success sales uh, side, and one with the support side. And I said, okay, draw me out a diagram with all the tools um, that, that they're using and how they're integrated. I just want to understand because my background is from information systems. So I was getting a, a you know, spider sense was tingling that you mm-hmm. know, things, were not, uh, things were not amazing. So um, I saw this sort of spider's nest on both uh, of those conversations. And, and, and knowing what I know from, from my background, I knew that this is only going to go one way. Right? We're going to add more stuff it's going to get more complicated. It's going to get more integrated. Uh, it's going to st- keep keep breaking, um, and there's no you know security implications of this whole thing are were, were you know a nightmare. Uh, so as a result, I was like, okay, we definitely have to uh, sort of do something here. Uh, we try to build our own sort of synchronization infrastructure, keep it minimal. That didn't work. We, we really try to avoid having to make our own thing. The longest time. Uh, at some point, I was like, "Okay, I'm just, I'm just fighting uh, the inevitable here. I might as well just give up and, and start building something." So we we built, uh, we started building something that we call Jellyfish. We've actually recently open sourced it. Um, and um, Jellyfish is basically the idea that most of these products have some fundamental functionalities. Right? They allow you to take your data items, sort them, filter them, you know, commute, collaborate over them, uh, permission them. Uh, share them, you know, uh, interact with customers about them, et cetera, et cetera. But the data items are different, right? So Zendesk has like a support thread. Salesforce has like an opportunity. Um, Slack has a, a chat, like whatever. But they, once you like take that out, what they do around that is roughly very, very similar. Um, and they also don't like you to share data between them, right? Because that makes them irrelevant, right? So the, the, their business model is seats. Uh, and seats means you got to be in the product, right? Which I, I found very interestingly was enforcing in Balena a department structure without us actually wanting to have it, right? Because if you have the high priesthood of Salesforce, mm-hmm. they're the people that have access to the data. If you have the high priesthood of Zendesk, uh, they're the high priesthood that has that data. Uh, so now they talk on behalf of the data, right? Like you have an implicit department, even if you never... <laughs> that yeah, was never I mean, I've, I've seen the same thing and, and what we're describing is not... Uh, I mean, this is a very typical problem, right? You get this sort of explosion of different tools. You get, I mean, I like your term for it. You get a priesthood, which is the subset of people in the company that knows how to use the tool. And then very quickly, you're in a situation where, okay, I, I'm working on some problem, building some product, but now I've got you know, five different kinds of information that live inside five different tools. And I am incapable of just going and getting what I already know I need. I have to like go and consult these different priestly classes of people, one of which knows the Salesforce database, the other one knows this yeah. tool, and it just becomes slow. I mean, it's like quicksand. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that was the, the thing. And I kind of, I was like, okay, what's, is there any hope in the horizon? Like, is kind of kind of look forward to something. Maybe the situation is bad now, but it'll get better later. And I was like, no, it's just we're just going to get worse and worse on this. 
So I kind of just pulled the plug uh, and or, or or maybe plugged the project uh, in and said, okay, we're going to build Jellyfish. And the idea is, again, that it, it can accept all sorts of different kind of data items that we can uh, define. It can synchronize with those products as well. It doesn't mean like we're not using GitHub. It doesn't mean we're not using uh, a tool that has some value. It means that we build a one-to-one synchronization with Jellyfish, and then Jellyfish is our internal sort of clearinghouse where we operate as much as possible. We might skip outside, but at least you've got a, uh, hub and spoke model, right? You got 10 programs, 10 connections to your center. You have 10 programs and you need to connect them to each other. That's 90 connections, right? Like that's a lot, <laughs> that's a lot more complicated without a center. Um, so, so Jellyfish is becoming quickly our, um, uh, our communication sort of nervous, nervous center for, for, for Belena. And it, um, I kind of call it, you know, a cross between Excel and, and Slack. Uh, so <laughs> something like that. And you said you open sourced it. What would be the motivation for doing that? So for the longest time, we're keeping it, uh, we're keeping it ourselves, and I said, oh, you know, it could be a lot of potential, et cetera, et cetera. But that's where the positive something comes in. And we said, well, look, we're going to start talking about how we operate up Elena. We consider this to be uh, a magnet, right? But we started talk, being vocal about how we, we work because we want to attract people that want to work this way. And the magnet has two two poles, right? Like we also want to. Uh, tell people who might not be very comfortable working that way that you know that you might not <laughs> you might not want to waste your time uh, you know uh, applying to applying to Valena because you know if you're looking for a more traditional structure that works for you that's great um, we don't do that so we wanted to sort of clarify our own position and we wanted to uh, transmit that to the world um, and then we we heard people with at least some level of interest it's still very early days and we said well Okay, why why are we, you know, we kind of challenged our own assumption of why are we keeping jellyfish uh, closed source, right? And said, well, there's no, there's some like theoretical benefit if like we make it one day, but like we could have just put it out there and, and maybe somebody else has value uh, from that and we could create this positive sum interaction, right? Like they make it better, we benefit, we make it better, they benefit, maybe other people can, can step in. Um, and you know we we all operate better. So that was kind of the very simple uh, way in which we, we we thought about it. We've done a lot of work. There's, you know, years and years of uh, work have gone uh, into it. Uh, it's still you know probably it, it's not the sort of thing today that you would just take and stand up and and, and uh, you know be on on your way into two hours. Uh, it's, it's it's not you know as as easy to get started with like Slack. Um, but you know that's kind of how you get started in these in these feedback loops, right? You, you put it out there, you hear complaints, you get it, you get you improve it. Um, it'll it'll get there eventually. But um, we we just thought that you know this was a kind of a binary um, motion that we could we could uh, perform that uh, sort of sets all those things in motion rather than you know saying oh you know we'll perfect it internally and one day we'll release it or whatever. Just look, let's let's just open it up. Uh, it is a, you know, it is a effectively a, a alpha right now for for people who are not us, right? Who are not running it internally. Uh, we don't have the team sort of to to just stand it up. But you know, there's only one way to um, to get where we want, which is to you know allow people who have the desire to to, to, to work with. And uh, I don't know, that felt a lot more, um, you know, like the right thing to do. I think for 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 that technology than. Uh, holding on to some sort of vague hope of like eventually uh, building some big business on it. There still might be a business on it, but uh, you know, keeping the source closed is not 
that just didn't feel like the, the right way forward. So when you're doing a lot of the stuff that's new and takes a lot of time to bake, how do you think about actually tracking success there? So, so you also, you mentioned something earlier, I think called good arts law, which is that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. So yeah. help, help us unpack that. So I doubt you're saying that you guys don't use metrics, right. but in what, how do you actually think about something like this in terms of how you measure and motivate success for something that takes uh, more than just a couple of sprints of work to actually get to a product? Yeah, the, the, the way we think about metrics is um, the metrics are good when we're sitting on the same side of the table, right? If we're having database issues, let's say, right, we're going to pull up the metrics and we're going to sit there and just look at them and say, okay, what's wrong with the database? Um, what Goodhart's Law sort of forbids you from doing uh, is using metrics as a weapon, especially against people who, you know, it's, it's, it's upon them to do a good job in measurable and non-measurable ways. Um, so if, if, if I go to my sales team and I say, like, you got to get the sales up, you know, or else sort of your, your job is aligned or, or, or you can use, you know, commissions or whatever, which we don't, um, that gives them a very clear message, right? That of all the ways in which they do their work well, there's measurable ways and non-measurable ways, right? The measurable ways are what counts, right? So they should do as much as they can there. And the non-measurables don't count, right? So they should take energy from the one and apply it to the other. And what's worse, you might say, okay, not everybody's like that, right? Then not everybody's motivated that way. Even if you put a commission system in place, people, you know, uh, some people will, will, will still do their job properly. You have set yourself up to fire those people by measuring that way, right? You literally will punish them for not doing that. So eventually you'll get to the point where you'll only have people that uh, are following that, that, that philosophy. So um, that's uh, the, the, the problem with, with, with uh, sort of Goodhart's Law. And that's why I think uh, metrics used as an argument, as a, as a, uh, a, a you know, a no context way to make decisions about things um are are toxic to and, and, and you know they they directly lead to a lot of the the, the ways uh in which sort of you know modern society is, is is breaking down uh there's this book called the tyranny of metrics that i that wholeheartedly uh recommend to people it has uh, you know examples of this same pattern uh, everywhere you know from somebody reading uh somebody going to university state, right? Like when, if you've ever chosen a class because you thought it would be an easy A rather than because you'd learn the most, mm. you've participated in good arts. <laughs> you, you've now optimized the metric of your GPA over the non-measurable of like how much did I learn, right? So we do it all the time. We don't even think about it. I see. No, yeah, that's a, that's a great example. I think probably everyone has done something like that where, yeah, the metric becomes the thing you want rather than the thing that you started out wanting to get. So. You have this interesting uh, parable, I guess, in this essay you have on Substack about something called the anti-corruption agency, which I, I guess is about how incentives can how how incentives can drive good people to do bad things. And I think it's related to to what you were just describing. So, can you unpack that for us and explain yeah. explain that story? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I, that, that story, I, I was really happy when I wrote it because I think it really captures. Um, it's like a thought experiment, right? That, that, that really puts you in a position where you, you, you kind of see how everything starts to go sideways. Um, so the idea is like, imagine you're this all powerful head of the anti-corruption agency of, uh, you know, some nation, uh, 
uh, with the full back. Everything is set up for you to succeed. You have the full backing of the politicians from both parties. They really love you. You've got all the budget you want. You've got incredible people uh, in your organization. Somehow, you know, this never happened, but let's just like set everything up right in the exact perfect way. Um, you've got many, you've got a lot of resources, a lot of people in your, in your, in your uh, group. They've, Oh, they're all you know set up. You know they're really committed to their career in anti-corruption. You've got unions, pension plans, the whole thing. Um, and you know you've got a long string of successes, like weeding out various types of corruption, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and one day, a scientist shows up in your in your office and says, uh, you know, uh, Commander, I don't know what the title would be, uh, says, I've got this this plan that we can implement. Uh, I think in the in the, the written form, it's like this button you can press, but it's not really about magic. It's like we've got this one, you know, weird trick, this, this plan that if you, if we implement it, corruption will be eliminated fully for everybody, uh, forever in our country. Um, now, it's really interesting that if, and, and let's just say that the, the person sees this, we kind of read through the plan, like, you know, this is going to work, right? They, they're, they're convinced that this is actually efficacious. The question is, do they actually press the button, do they actually put it in, in operation? Um, knowing that at that very moment, their whole agency and all of their you know, incredible people and all the pension plans and everything else is going out the window. Um, because essentially what happens when you set up an organization is you have this implication of permanence, mm. right? You assume that this problem will be there forever. That's the core assumption of hiring people and building up their careers and building up, with it, you know, and you get your promotions, et cetera, et cetera. Nobody is trying to get themselves out of a job, right? You, you actually hear this a lot in, in, in organizations that are like really like settled. You, you hear this a lot. It's like, what, are you going to like get us out of a job? Like, you know, slow down. Um, but even if, you know, again, everything is settling, like, they know that the moment they say, okay, let's do this thing, their whole reason for being goes away. Uh, or even let's say the budget is housed, right? Like that's still quite bad. Um, so not only should, like you would think, right? Like, that they would actively be looking for this. So let's say I have an idea for anti-corruption, or you have an idea, uh, and you go to your friend who's like a, a member of parliament, or some, some high-ranking politician, you're like, oh, you know, I got the plan. But like, go to the anti-corruption people. They'd love to see this, right? Like, everybody directs uh, ideas in that space to those people. Um, but as we discussed internally, there is a lot of pressure to have a plan, but the plan is like a 20-year plan. <laughs> Right, and then you start to get into this weird thing. Like, let's say nobody hears you, and you go to social media, and you're like, "I've got the plan, and we've got to, you know, advocate for this plan." And like, you know, bottom up sort of uh, gets gets traction. Now you are pressured from internally from your organization to stand out and say, "Hey, your pseudoscientific blah 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 opinions are getting in the way of the." hard work we have to do here at the anti-corruption agency you know we have our 20-year plan and you know we can't hear all these like snake oil salespeople and social media uh in fact we've got to censor that <laughs> right um so all of the it's you can sort of see it and all of the incentives are for you even if you come from the best place just a little bit of self-reception like that's all you need and we all have a little bit of that Right. If things are set up that way, you will be forced to do that thing. And just the, the, the cherry on top, if you don't, you'll be fired. <laughs> the next guy will come and who will. Yeah. I mean, this seems like um, 
I mean, this is all fairly intuitive in terms of what the problem is. And it comes from something very fundamental that we all are intimately familiar with, which is, as you said, no one wants to be out of a job. Not only do you want to not be out of a job, you want to, most people don't want to just maintain their job. They want to, they want to move up the rank somehow. So right. there's this built in assumption of permanence, just sort of baked into everyone's natural tendency for how they want to behave inside of any organization. So how on earth do you get around this problem? Right. So, so um, to me, and, and this comes actually, interestingly enough, comes back to what we were talking about Amazon uh, right before. Um, you, to me, specialization is the real uh, enemy, right? Because when you are married to a specific problem, you are married to its maintenance, right? You actually kind of, sort of, maybe you won't say it, but you want it to continue. Hmm. Um, so, or at least you act as if, right? That's all that matters. It doesn't, uh, you know, it doesn't have to be like conscious, but like your actions are such that you will keep the problem in check maybe, but you will not uh, actively, desperately look for ways to eliminate it. Um, so the solution to me is to stop at a certain level of specialization where you are still quite a generalist. So what you described at Amazon, everybody is a service builder. I think at Amazon, they have that either unit is called a service, a blend we call it a product. But it's, it's roughly the same idea. Like you are an expert uh, product builder. When you succeed is when you've brought this problem to a steady state where it's self-managed, right? All the loops are operating. It's in homeostasis, I guess, from biology. Everything is, 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 is actually like self-managed. You can move on to your next problem. Your career is not tied to you being needed in that problem. In fact, that's a bad thing. Mm. Right? If you constantly are getting pulled in to solve this problem, maybe you're not doing it very well. I, lo I love I love how you brought in homeostasis there. So so the idea is um, the job description is not you know build the blank product. It's to build products which are does uh, it's to build products that reach some kind of homeostatic equilibrium, such that they're they're self managing to as much the, to to the highest extent yep. possible. And that you're saying that solves this problem because it gets around the the curse of specialization. Instead of being focused on building you know, the blank product to do blank, you're now just focused on building products that become self-sustaining. And at the point that one does, you can move on to doing a different, exactly. a different product for a different problem. So solving the problem should be success, right? Obvious, mm -hmm. like yeah. you know, you're succeeding at eliminating an issue. And, and, and sometimes it could just be something, you might not need a mistake, right? You might just realize that if we just call something something different, you know, sometimes it just goes away. Sometimes we've had some obvious realizations that there's something out there to just use and stop working on this massive project we were working on. Uh, you know, that realization should be should be encouraged. Like, it should be rewarded. It shouldn't be like, oh, well, you know, you've got, you got a job now. Um, yeah, so, so, so that's how I, 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 we're not, I can't say we're there yet at all right now, but like, this is where we're trying to get to, where think of it more like a dojo or like, you know, uh, people who are excited about the craft of building, you know, creating these stable patterns, um, who are mentoring each other, right? Instead of supervising, right, we're mentoring. We are learning from each other. We want to get better at what we do. Um, and that's a whole different way of interacting than, you know, the Prussian Army uh, system that we uh, were discussing at the beginning. So I, I think I read something in this essay where, you know, you were describing some of the structure of, of your organization and you had something in there about like separate mission statements for different parts of the company. And that struck me as very interesting because most companies have sort of one, they might have like multiple, you know, 
company values or whatever, but there's usually one overarching mission statement that everyone is meant to organize around. And it sounded right. like you guys do something a little bit different. So, so how does, what is that? And then, you know, I guess the, the related question would be, how do you think about something like company culture, generally speaking? Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, so basically what that essay uh, describes is that, you know, that Palena was struggled with departments, right? Again, like how do we uh, focus people? Um, and if you look in the literature, there's kind of two ways of, of separating a company. You can do it functionally, like, you know, this is HR, this is marketing, this is engineering, this is uh, whatever, uh, manufacturing. Um, or you can do it uh, by product, right? Like PNG, for instance, has, you know, the, um, I don't know, the, the, the dish show uh, division and the, you know, detergent division and the beauty product division and the whatever. Um, and they individually, uh, these are very autonomous, right? They are almost like separate companies, except for like some overarching sort of financial management and, and stuff like that. Um, so both of these have problems, right? On the one, you don't get your, your your scale benefits because each one is doing it differently. So learnings are not transferring uh, very well, um, but you have the autonomy, right? On the other one, you have coherence as in one HR policy, one marketing approach, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but you don't uh, have autonomy. Right. When you want to get anything done, you got to get all the people together from all the different groups and talk to the managers, managers. Uh, good night. Um, so this is and this is really the fundamental problem, like uh, coherence, autonomy. Right. Like, how do we build something that, that operate, you know, that, that makes, makes the most of what we all know while letting everybody kind of do their thing? Um, so what we decided to do is define this concept of a product. Um, but internal functions would also be refactored as products. So it's kind of like a hybrid. And, and, and I think Amazon system is not too different in intent where you're like, okay, well, if we're going to have to make, uh, you know, tools for our team, we're not just going to make tools for our team. We're going to make uh, what we call people OS. It's like a little, another little product we're working on. Um, and in there, there's going to be uh, more products like, you know, how we schedule support. We, we, we use like combinatorial uh, algorithms. Uh, to, to sort of find the perfect support schedule because we have people all over the world. Uh, we have all sorts of different things we've, we've, we've built. And again, the, the idea is that it's a product. It could be that it has one customer today, but we always say like tomorrow we could open this up. There should be a landing page that you can go and sign up and use it for your company. Um, and, and that I think gets people out of the mindset of building things in this sort of parable kind of way, right? Like in this way where all the causal arrows are just kind of intermixed. You don't know where something starts, something begins, what role something plays. You're like, okay, we are, you know, we have to build a proper, if you, if we're going to have an interface, we're going to have a proper interface, right? If we're not going to have an interface, fine, let's all work together. But to the degree that we're going to have one, it's going to be a decent interface so that we, we kind of know on both sides of that what the expectations are. And I think that's where the separate uh, mission statements come in because you want to set those individual mission statements of the individual uh, loops uh, to be such that when they add up, you do the thing that you uh, ultimately want to accomplish as a company. Um, but you don't want somebody who's working on, uh, you know, tooling for our team to be thinking about edge computing uh, or to, like it's just not going to be very motivating for them, right? If they think that the only thing that matters at Polina is edge computing and they're working on, you know, uh, scheduling algorithms for, for, for support shifts, um, you know, that's not as sort of 
uh, doesn't feel like you're making as big contribution as if you're thinking, if your mindset is, I'm working on making teams more efficient in general, and my first customer is building. I think it, that, that context shift uh, helps a lot. And again, it, it gives you that sort of product builder mindset rather than, I don't know, like second class citizen, like internal tooling, you know, whatever. I see. You know, I, I think that's interesting. So, so the reason you would have different mission statements is fundamentally because it allows you to keep everyone at a similar level level of motivation. Because if you have that that sort of one client facing uh, a mission statement, as you said, you're gonna have a bunch of people that don't really work on the client facing side stuff directly, feeling like they're not actually contributing to to the whole. Yeah. So this is gonna reiterate a lot of what you've been talking about. But I pulled out this quote from your essay. And I don't remember if this is from you or, or you were quoting someone else, but it said, um, large organizations of all kinds, from corporations to governments, lose their resilience simply because the feedback mechanisms by which they sense and respond to their environment have to travel through too many layers of distortion and delay. So, so again, this concept of there are sensors, there are feedback loops leaking linking these things together and you lose resilience when this breaks down, which is often simply by putting in too many layers in between all the different nodes. And right naturally, as a company grows, you put more and more layers and more and more hierarchy into the organization. And what's interesting about this to me is, um, as far as I know, you don't really have a background in biology, but this, this very much, a lot of this stuff very much reminds me of, uh, of biology. You know, when an organism breaks down, it's for the same kinds of reasons. Either the sensors stop working or the feedback loops that help regulate and coordinate them break down. And I'm wondering, I don't even know how to ask this question quite, but like, do you think of your organization almost like an organism that's that's growing and evolving? Um, is it something that's sort of like you're cultivating like a garden or is it something that you're engineering like a, like a device? Huh. Um. Look, my intent, like the, the, the dream scenario here is where I, you know, as we do better and better at what we do, I'm less and less relevant, uh, right? That, that I've handed over autonomy to more and more people on the team while we don't lose our coherence. Like that's the, 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 the plan. Um, so I guess it, it does look like engineering in the early stages, um, but once we hit... Um, you know, because we don't have enough time to wait for evolution to make the first self-replicator uh, by, by chance, right? We have to get there by design. Um, but the idea is to make it so that it can then grow uh, organically and, and, and experience sort of uh, evolution can have experimentation. Even this process I just described is kind of like mitosis, right? Like we have like this one big hairball and then uh, you're, like, you're creating like smaller clusters that look like the whole Mm. but in a, in, a, in a smaller way. And maybe they themselves will later uh, trigger the same procedure. So I'm, I'm very inspired by biology. Um, in fact, uh, you know, um, I don't know if I'm going to say this right, uh, but predictive coding uh, I've seen in sort of in, in, in from neuroscience is, has very similar things about, you know, nested feedback loops uh, as a way of explaining how the brain works. Uh, again, I'm completely out of my depth with that stuff, but I read it and I, and I get sort of ideas. Um, and I think it's the, the, the reason why you're seeing these analogs is because these are deeper patterns, right? Like these are just on, on, on a systems level, it's systems all the way down anyway, no matter what you do. Um, and I think it's kind of like with, with, with mathematics, with category theory, it's like this universal way of, of modeling all the other, uh, modes of science of, of, of mathematics, right? So 
through category theory, you can pass through, I don't know, from topology and end up in algebra or whatever, because it's like supposed to be the, the pattern of patterns, right? So I think it's, I, I check across different fields when some of these ideas start to play. And that's my way of confirming that I've not lost the plot, right? Like it, it's it's kind of a way of performing consilience on the, on, the, on the higher level of like, do these other fields, which we can even see as sensors, we have they seen the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. If, if these ideas occur, you know, from economics to uh, to biology to um, you know finance or uh, I don't know, there's like there's all sorts of you know engineering, like even like mechanical engineering, physical thing. Uh, you see the same patterns emerge. You're like, okay, this is this is a thing, right? I've I've, I've hit on a real uh, on a real pattern. So. One thing that I think is interesting to think about is, you know, you could almost think of, you know, an entire nation state as, you know, a really big startup or a really big company or something. And of course, it's going to have its own internal structure. It's going to vary from country to country. And I think you you have to start thinking about some of the, the same things that one would think about if you were if you were growing a startup like you are. And, you know, one of the things that we've been talking about is how internal structure within an organization either does or does not lead to a breakdown in coherence in you know the organization actually achieving what it's supposed to be able to achieve and to do that by responding as quickly and effectively as possible to what it's sensing both in its external environment and its internal environment just like an organism so you know with that in mind um, you know covid for a lot of people has been just an interesting experiment in many ways and and one of the things that we're all watching happen in more or less real time is um very large organizations government institutions for example and how they're behaving and responding and adapting to something that's you know evolving in on a day-to-day basis which is you know just everything to do with the pandemic and the virus and you know there's lots of different viewpoints on this but there's also i think a lot of um there's a lot of agreement that we we certainly haven't probably responded to things in the best way possible. And of course, you know, one way to look at this is perhaps that has to do with the internal structure of the institutions that are meant to be responding to everything. So for example, the Center for Disease Control, um, you know, it's been two years and we still don't have this thing under control. And I'm just wondering as sort of this systems thinker and the startup guy who's thought a lot about organizational structure, what's been your view for the last two years on how, say, the CDC has been handling things in the US? And how is that view, do you have any thoughts on how that might be tied to the organizational structure of that institution or or, or one? Oh, for sure. (laughs) Boy, do I have thoughts. Um, So one very interesting thing, it's it's, it's a very good example of the CDC because it's actually got a dual mission. Right. It's both the kind of the data scientists here. It's both the people in control of the data, but they're also advocates for vaccination. Right. They so their mission is like both to encourage a certain thing and to tell us what's happening. Can you see where <laughs> perhaps this could lead to certain distortions? And 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 um and, and that's why you see like these horribly contorted studies coming out about like how well if you look at like these three people in Kentucky uh, on, you know in the summer of you know 2020 like a specific day like natural immunity is, is is five times worse than vaccination which is very very impossible um, like just just on the background like it's like extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence and what they're bringing up is like something that looks like you know like gerrymandered right like uh, and like you have a hundred studies on the one side that say one thing and the cdc is like 
publishing in like a not a journal, like an internal communication yeah, like something. Let's just um, um, yeah, can, can you just very sort of clearly state uh, for people what you're talking about specifically in yeah. this case? Yeah. So so there is one of the uh, big disputes uh, in, in terms of the pandemic and and sort of uh, the CDC is on one side of that is to say that uh, immunity uh, acquired through infection, right? Like what, what is called natural immunity and people object to that term and I get why they object to it, but it's the easiest term we've got. Um, that immunity is, uh, is it better or worse than vaccine uh, derived immunity, right? So if you get vaccinated or if you get infected, like you have two people, right? One is vaccinated, yep. one is infected. Which one's better at training your immunity? Which one's better off for, for the future, like in the next, like next time they come in contact with, with the virus? Um, and there's a very, very large body of literature, uh, a lot of data coming out of Israel, like studies that cover millions of people that very clearly state, you know, natural immunity is just quite robust and long lasting and just really, really solid. And, and vaccine immunity is what it is, right? I'm not saying it doesn't exist. It's not, it's not a thing. It is, but it's not uh, the same thing as, as natural immunity. Uh, it, it's becoming quite clear. There's, there's numbers we can throw out there. I don't know that it's worth getting into the specifics. The point is that there's one body in the world that's like respected and putting out studies that say the exact opposite, and that's the CDC, um, which weirdly has this conflict in its mission of telling us what's going on, but also encouraging vaccination. So you can sort of put two and two together and say like, okay, maybe they're not telling us, you know, everything. Maybe they're trying to steer, you know, they're, they're giving us a noble lie to kind of steer the public, maybe coming from a good place, mm-hmm. steer the public towards what they think is... Um, the better the better uh, behavior maybe they're worried for instance that people if they believe that they would try to go out and get infected mm-hmm. and they don't want that to happen so yeah. they're trying to sort of distort the information field and, um, and there was yeah. i mean we i think it's, it's quite clear that this does happen and and you know it's um I would say it's it's not obviously right or wrong. You know, I think that's up to the individual to decide. But like, you know, remember at the beginning of the pandemic, we were told initially, don't buy masks because they're not going to yeah. help you. And you know, they they knew that wasn't probably accurate. But the reason they said that it was like a noble lie, right? We wanted to preserve right. supplies for healthcare workers, which is you know a perfectly reasonable thought to have. But it meant that the people reporting sort of what's true. We're telling yeah. us something that wasn't actually true because they were also the people reporting right. what to do. Yeah. And it sounds like that's, that's what you're saying. That, that conflict sort of puts you in the situation where you get to this, uh, the situation where, where you're being told a noble lie, something that's not actually true. Yep. Exactly. You know, that's, they're incentivized basically to, to do that uh, to the degree that they do or they don't is, you know, uh, it's hard to know without discovery. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not seeing internal emails. But um, you know, it definitely seems like that, and and the fact that they have this, this sort of this mission is um, ambiguous, uh, to say the least, is is definitely like makes you predict that that's what would happen. It's not surprising. Um, so that's one one kind of uh, thing that that definitely happens, um, and that has to do with lack of clarity of, of, of mission. But then once you also see, let's say, the head of the CDC in the news saying uh, certain things, that's so uh, on our on our board is the um, is a, a former uh, CTO of Microsoft, and he told me the best way I have of communicating to uh, I had communicating to the, the the rank and file at Microsoft is to talk to the press. Right? <laughs> they don't read the memos; they'll they'll hear it when I talk to the press. Um, so you know, when when the head of the CDC goes on the mass media and and says certain things, 
um, and, and knowing that there's like a little bit of a noble lie potentially culture internally, uh, you might be, you know, led to understand as a rank and file, you know, CDC data analyst that that's what we're looking for, right? Um, and 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 your head, your, your your boss might or might not say that explicitly, and their boss might not might or might not say that explicitly. But people also gather from the gestalt, right? Like who gets treated in what way for doing what. Mm-hmm. Um, and before you know it, you just have an organization where uh, I'm not I'm not saying the CDC is like that, though I do deeply suspect it. Um, but just abstractly, you would have an organization where uh, data becomes a tool, right? It becomes a like a um, an instrumental sort of uh, object to be used to accomplish certain objectives. Your your initial mission of like you know, just tell us what's going on so we can uh, orient becomes, uh, I'm going to tell you what I think you need to know in order to do the thing I already know you want to do, which becomes really, really troublesome when the situation keeps changing, right? Because then yeah. you get caught. People remember, right? And then you t- keep changing your tune. People are like, hey, what's going on? I thought you said <laughs> this other thing. Um, and, and, and what's the biggest tragedy, of course, is that you waste the one resource that is even more valuable than PPE, which is institutional trust, right? And, and, and that kind of gets us to where we are today. So, you know, previously when we were talking about, you know, little startups disrupting the big incumbents, you know, it's this, this story that you hear so many times about, uh, you know, the, the little organization that can move fast versus the big organization that has resources and like can have this long-term vision, but like they're just sort of sluggish and slow to adapt. <clears throat> so it's like this long-standing issue that, that we see over and over again. It's very hard to overcome this. Um, you know, the story of your company is really, you were telling us a story of how you're trying to sort of overcome that tension, but uh, you know, there's no obvious quick solution. So, you know, for something at the societal level like this, when you're talking about an organization like the CDC or anything, anything at that level, and you're talking about a problem that, you know, it's not just countrywide, it's, it's globally, you need to, you know, you need to have organizations that are as big and resourceful as governments. But at the same time, because the, the virus is mutating so quickly and things are changing so rapidly, you want to have that nimbleness. Is there just kind of like this hopeless trade-off here, or is yeah. there actually a way you can have an organization the size of a government institution respond with the the nimbleness that we actually need it to? Yeah, I mean, there's there's solutions of different timescales, right? Like if you told me, you know, what do, what would do you do tomorrow um, versus where would you like to be in ten years? There's different ways to approach this, but I think the immediate thing is that just encourage feedback loops of information as much as possible, right? So, for instance. Um, there is this very disturbing trend of um, de-empower, disempowering the, the, the doctors or you know, the nurses or the people who are face-to-face with the patients, right? They, they are being told how to do what they need to do and exactly what to do and what not to do. Uh, being threat- Their licenses are being threatened if they prescribe certain drugs. Um, to give you an, an, a non-Ivermectin example, um, Paul Marek, uh, who is the... Um, one of the founders of the Frontline COVID uh, Care Alliance um, has been banned by his hospital and is now in a lawsuit. Uh, and I think he's been put on administrative leave for the same reason from prescribing certain drugs to his patients in the ER that he runs. He's the head of the, uh, you know, uh, not, not the, sorry, the ICU, right? He's the director of the ICU and he's being told you cannot uh, prescribe these drugs. And these drugs include fluvoxamine which has fantastic um, 
uh, sort of RCTs, the, pe the people who doubt, let's say, something like ivermectin, do not doubt fluoxetine. It's actually like pretty well understood that it's either neutral or it helps. But he's being banned from prescribing it um, because top down, right? And I dug into the regulations a little bit. There might be some some uh, motivations in terms of how it goes even higher up, like how the the hospitals are being driven through various bonuses to prescribe certain drugs uh, by you know the the, the whoever is, is handling the funding. I don't know if it's the NIH or the FDA or the CDC, but um, somewhere from the uh, higher levels of the government, their uh, incentive structure is in such a way that um, they really don't want people to be using generics. Um, and, you know, you get this thing where you disempower the leaves of your tree, right? You disempower the people who are face-to-face -face with trying stuff just fig to figure things out. This is how medicine has traditionally worked. Uh, the doctors are free to prescribe off-label. Uh, off Right? And then things bubble up. Now we have the inverse, and especially in, in emergencies, this tends to happen a lot in these organizations, right? Where they just make these like tight groups uh, because they need to make, make decisions fast, right? And they impose uh, top down, but that can't continue for a long time. And, and that's what we're seeing. So, so we're seeing the opposite, basically, what we would need, which to me is like actually open up and allow the bottom up to, um, to attack certain things because we don't have a lot of certainty around this virus. Like yeah. we just don't know a ton, but we behave like we know everything, right? So that's actually, that's kind of a lack of humility that you can discuss it in like a, this, like a, like, a, like a character trait, but really comes out of the incentive structure. Yeah, and I think I think those two things are tied together um, very closely. This, this um, reliance on top-down authority as opposed to listening what's coming up from the bottom up, in this case from like doctors on the ground treating patients, and this uh, conflict that you identified in the CDC, but I mean, this exists everywhere. I, I see it in my own startup life between um, those meant to be reporting to everyone like what reality is versus those that are meant to direct resources based on that information uh, as to what we should be doing. Um, and just, I mean, this is a pervasive, pervasive problem. And it results, as you mentioned earlier, in people using data as sort of a tool for whatever ends they're after. So like in a startup, you know, just to give you some abstract examples, uh, to those listening, you know, I see this all the time in, in the startups that, that I'm involved with. So uh, there's some internal group, they're doing product design and engineering work. They've got their metrics that they want to hit. They've got their thing that they want to accomplish. And yeah. what you often see is um, if that team that has to hit those metrics and build the thing is also the team that's meant to be sort of collecting the data to support what they're doing, then what you naturally get is they just fish around for whatever data makes them look <laughs> like they're doing the best. So surprise. I, I mean, I, I just, I, I love this as a very general principle for organizing people, whether it's a government organization, a startup, your own life in many ways. Um, uh, you know, the separation of church and state between, you know, how are you collecting data to define like what's actually out in the world? And then separately, how are you deciding what to do based on yeah. that? If you have the people making the second decision, the same people as the ones like collecting and finding the data, then you just get into the self-serving forever yeah. loop and it, it, it breaks down eventually. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is uh, in, in, in the rationalist community, they have two different words for this. You have instrumental, instrumental rationality, which is what do, right? What do we do? Like, how, how do we solve a certain problem? And you have epistemic rationality, which is what's true. And these are two different disciplines because, um, you know, uh, deception, for instance, plays, plays very differently in these two, uh, these two fields. Uh, so I definitely have developed this intuition throughout the pandemic that um, we may apply sort of consequentialist logics to what we do. 
but we absolutely must be religious, like Deontic, sort of, you know, thou shalt not about information, about what is true and sharing that because we don't really know. And by assuming that we know and, and therefore starting to distort each other's reality, uh, picture of reality, we are almost certainly making things worse. Like we should assume we're, we're making things worse by doing that. Even if there's some short-term gain in somebody's metric or something, it's, it's you know, the losses are, you know, we're burning down trillions to, to, to gain millions or something. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, we've talked a lot about obviously organizations, literal organizations in our conversation, um, your startup and startups generally, um, bigger organizations like we were just discussing. Um, but a lot of this information I think is also useful to people, which is going to be the majority of people who aren't interested in starting their own company or building some big organization or something like that. Um, so I'm wondering if you could sort of comment on, you know, as a systems thinker, as someone who's thought about organizations and things like this, how has your thinking style, how, how have the strategies you've, you've taken for your own like personal um, prevention strategies for things like COVID changed over the course of the last two years? Like what, what are the things that you've learned that have caused you to either start doing or stop doing different things? What has your, been, what, what has your approach been? So I think one very interesting feature of this virus is violence, right? Like we, which were um, sort of controversial early on, is it going to mutate around certain, uh, you know, measures that we're taking, et cetera, et cetera? Is it going to, there's going to be immune escape and whatnot? And that seems to be happening. Mm -hmm. Um, So my mind has been going towards what can we do that is so broad spectrum that it doesn't matter what the virus is doing. In fact, how can we attack the problem at its root, right? So we have so many respiratory viruses, actually, right? Now that we think about it, you know, there's the flu, there's norovirus, there's RSV, there's, you know, COVID now, a new, new sort of uh, kid on the block. Um, we don't even know, although apparently this is, again, I learned this recently, there's like three other coronaviruses and uh, we don't even know all, what we call the cold is like just a, a bucket. Where we, yeah, it's actually several different viruses that just give similar symptoms, but they're not right. the same thing, yeah. Um, so in my mind, it has been a lot like, can we do for air what we've done for water? Like, this is a phrase that, like, echoes in my head a lot, right? Because when we hmm. fixed our water supply, we just dealt with a lot of diseases in wealth food, right? We didn't need to know what they are, blah, blah, blah. We know they come through the water, right? Can We fix that, right? We got good quality water. We are um, in a good place. Um but with the air somehow, um, you know, this hasn't, you know, like early in COVID, I don't know if you remember where a lot of skiers had gone to the Alps and were coming back like deathly ill. Um, and, you know, if you think about it, they go in these chalets, right? Like warm air, uh, humid or whatever, uh, airtight, sealed, just breathing into each other. <laughs> you could not design a better uh, environment to get, you know, max viral load. Um, so, uh, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, there's this variable that we've not been thinking about at all. And, uh, can we get our air better in our houses and our businesses? Uh, you know, at Belena, we did a summit. We made sure there was like, uh, we made a little device, which were bite release about sort of showing it very clear in the room, like what the air quality was so that, um, a big belief of mine basically is an enabler, right? Like people know if people have information, like what's the air quality? they will do what they need to do to improve it, right? So uh, can we get personal uh, air quality monitors? There is a startup, they're the name of 18 now that have a little device 
Uh, if people start pushing, you know, in businesses and in, in, in public spaces where the air quality is bad to improve that, uh, the air is stale, right? There's UV filters as well, stuff like that. Yeah. I think that, and that's stuff the government could do, right? Like they could just, they're putting out mandates, might as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, air. I, I, I mean, it's actually quite simple when I think about it now, but it, it never occurred to me. So like we have, right, I can log onto the internet and see, um, you know, like what the UV index or whatever is and like anywhere I go on the planet. Um, I mean, here in the Pacific Northwest, right, I can see what the air quality is because, you know, if there's a big fire like sure. relatively nearby, but not so big that I notice it, you know, I can still go find a number that tells me like, oh, wow, the air quality outside is like not that good. It's filled with smoke. So basically what you're saying is, could we somehow bake this into our everyday lives such that, you know, you could look at an app or something that would tell you is the airflow good or bad in this building is, uh, you know, there are a lot of particles in the air or not. Is, is that basically what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I mean, even it's just a fairly simple CO2 meter, something to tell me if the air is moving. Right? We, you can do particles. You can go much deeper in that. But honestly, the one proxy you want is like, is the air moving? Right? Like, yeah. is, have we, people been breathing in here a lot or, or not? Um, if that was in our phones, like if you had a light at the corner of your phone, that's a green or red, right? Like, uh, or something in between. Um, I think that would drive a lot of behavioral uh, change for people. And you don't need everybody to do that. You, you got to have the five percent though that's going around, like, you know, having their about clean air, and um, I, I do think you get a lot of improvement and, and a lot of drop in seasonal. It's like I have a, a young, uh, young child, and like they bring back whatever <laughs> from their uh, from from their you know day, day day activities, and I don't think that any of the you know uh, preschools or, or daycares or whatever think about air quality based at all. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I, I feel, I mean, I'm not an expert in this stuff, but I feel like a lot of the tech would be there. Like, I, I don't think there's a fundamental reason why like phones couldn't start to have CO2 detectors that literally like make a light go on or something. No, no, we just haven't, we just haven't thought in that direction. Um, yeah. But we, I, we, I we haven't been aware of the, of the, you know, that, that, that variable. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I do... so, uh, this purple era, this, I, I don't want to say we're completely unaware, but it's like, it's a niche elite thing, right? Like some people know about it, but not. It's not like a, a daily concern. Yeah, but but I also think it's powerful to just alert people to the idea that if you have accurate ra- ways of measuring reality, if you have sensors that will tell you the way things like actually are around you, and you simply provide that information, even if you do nothing else, people will organically start to experiment with strategies to alter their behavior, whether or not we're talking about SARS-CoV-2 epidemic stuff or anything else. If you just sort of yeah. display display the right information, you know, people will, will organically come to solutions. Mm-hmm. I think so. I, I think that's, yeah. And that's really a, a big thing for me. Instead of like telling people what to do, I've found that things that work quite well are people that you, you enable them to do the right thing. You, you show them reality and they're like, hey, I don't like that. Right? Like, that's not good. Uh, these things tend to work uh, quite well, but somehow, again, we, we are much more about uh, top-down position. Yeah. I mean, this actually reminds me of something else I know that you've talked about. So, so you just mentioned enablement versus top-down control. And, and I know that you've said previously things like, you know, there's two basic mindsets with respect to the future of humanity. One where we rely on control systems to keep things stable. And the other where we rely on enablement systems to do right. what life does, which is grow and grow. So right. can you unpack that for us and sort of explain what these two mindsets are and, and who embodies them? Yeah. Okay. I can, I can, uh, I can, I can do my best. This is sort of this, uh, it's an idea I've been playing with. And when I do that, I usually put it out there in big, bold letters so that, you know, any 
uh, pushback comes comes at me, so I can I can uh, I can adjust. I want the feedback, right? Um, so, what if we thought of basically the idea is like, what if we thought about good versus evil as enablement versus control? So there's one type of mindset, and I mean, I'm a big Elon Musk Elon Musk fan, so you know, uh, uh, just you know, full disclosure. But like Elon does this a, a, a lot, right? He doesn't say like you have to use electric car. He's like, here's an awesome electric car. Don't you want to have it? Even if you don't care about the environment, it's like the fastest car in the world. Don't you want to have this car? And you know, like, and somehow that creates momentum. And now all the other car companies are, again, they are incentivized, right? Like to to move. And and uh, I saw actually a, a tweet from the CEO of Ford uh, saying, yeah, Elon, you did it. Like you've gotten us all on your uh, on your frequency, which is weird, right? Like uh, five years ago, nobody was uh, uh, being so effusive. Um, but okay, so that's the, the enablement mindset. Is basically give people the ability to do the right thing, and they and they will. Um, the control mindset is is the opposite, and 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 I think if we blow it up to uh, large sort of scale humanity levels, we come back to sort of positive sum versus uh, zero sum. Uh, so there are there's one mindset, and a lot of people would have heard of it. That you know, there's only so many resources on on the planet. There's only so much we can we can do. There's only so uh, you know so many people that can be on the planet. Uh, we should you know uh, maybe you know I've, I've heard people on the like slightly more extreme end saying you know I, I won't have children because you know the, the Earth can't, can't take it or whatever, which is kind of the Malthusian. Um, philosophy, right? It went goes all the way back to the 19th century, where the guy who did like the, some estimation about how you know in, in 100 years the, the the roads will be filled with horse manure because we're getting more and more horses. Therefore, uh, you know what's going to happen with the, with the manure? Uh, turns out we've got cars, right? So, so, but and and that's actually a very important uh, dynamic because what do humans do when we have a problem? Like we don't just take a linear model. It's like, oops, I guess the poop is, you know, three floors up. Uh, we're like, we do, we, we invent things, right? And, and, and that does not conform to linear models, right? We, we, we come up with like step changes. Um, so, so that's kind of the enablement side of like, give people the tools and they will find ways that you can't even imagine. Like, so it requires you to trust humanity, trust serendipity, trust the bottom up which is like hugely psychologically uncomfortable, right? For a regulator to say like, somebody will come and make something like, you can't, you can't tell that to center, exactly. Mm -hmm. Right, you have to be like the man with the plan. Um, and, and so that's the, 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 the tension. A lot of the time you see with these very, very large government bureaucracies and, and NGOs and like this, like this whole complex, right? That has this, this mentality of, we got to tell people what to do for their own good. Um, and we're just going to set things up so that they do it. Um, you don't, you're not quite, we're not quite at one child policy that, that China had uh, implemented, but you know, it, it's, things are starting to, you know, look as if, you know, pe people right now might not be uh, so full-throated and condemning, you know, that kind of policy. They're like, well, you know, you got to do what you got to do for the earth or whatever. Uh, but that, again, that leaves out this whole other piece is like uh, invention, like innovation, uh, you know, Problems created, problems resolved. Like there is a feedback, there's a homeostasis in humanity itself, right? When something becomes uncomfortable enough, enough attention goes to it to make it less uncomfortable. Um, and that's my, my, my whole point is that um, life is about growth, right? No species has decided to self-regulate its population and managed to do that for an extended period of time. So in my mind, it's very, 
it's very clear. You're either growing or you're not growing, right? And if you're not growing, you're probably dying. Um, and so that's why, again, uh, looking at Elon Musk, um, when he says, you know, we've got to, first of all, he's going out there saying we don't have enough children, which is completely counter narrative, right? He's like, whoa, what, where's well, the, that's what the data says. Forget what the narrative says. The data actually says human population uh, is, is like, is, is on the set, is set to decrease. Um, but also he says, you know, we need more plants. Like, let's just go out and get more land. We don't have enough land. Like, that's arguable. I mean, but let's, let's, you know, go terraform another planet. Oh, that's very difficult. Let's, let's give it a shot. You know, like let's, let's, let's try, you know, let's, let's be open to the, to the, the potential. You never know. Uh, some people might, might like to do that. You know, you might not, but uh, some might. So um, this idea of just, you know, live and let live and give others the, the tools to, to do things. And, and that that takes our energy. And instead of directing it at each other to fight to over, you know, limited goods, well, there's only so much. We can use it to enable each other to invent and to just go out there and take from like the universe, the the, the solar system and, and beyond. Um, you know, there's so you know, humanity in a thousand years will we still be on just Earth, and if not, then why not start you know going farther out already? Well, one of the last things I want to ask you: you've mentioned a couple resources, a couple interesting books and things. If people are interested in thinking about systems and how to think about metrics and how to think about organizations, um, either in the abstract or, or if any of these resources you might point us to are specifically geared towards people interested in startups, are there any, any books or other resources that you want to point people to that might be related to some of the ideas we've discussed? Yeah, so one of them is definitely this book I mentioned, The Tyranny of Metrics, which is not, it's a, it's a critique, it's not a solution, right, which is kind of a, a bit of a problem, but it definitely, like, opens your eyes to how things are uh, today. Who, who um, um, I, it's, I can't tell you off the top of my head, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll send you a message. What, what, kind, the, what kind of person? Oh, it's like a, it's like a coming from a business perspective, I think, actually, it's like a, some sort of business school type uh, person. It wasn't like some sort of spiritual thing or something. It was more like, a, you know, here's all the examples from like from, from finance, from health, from education, from whatever, of all these things going wrong in this predictable ways. Um, so that's the, uh, that's the, definitely a book that, um, um, yeah, that, that, that comes up for me. Um, there's this, um, I don't know what to call him. Like, uh, he's, he's, he's credited with inventing uh, lean manufacturing in Japan, actually. He's an American called, uh, I hope I don't watch the name, uh, W. Edwards Deming. Uh, Deming, everybody just says Deming, um, who actually was trying to explain things to people who are doing manufacturing in the US who didn't listen to him. Uh, so he went to Japan and then he found a collaborator who was Japanese and they got these ideas uh, there and they have you know, lean manufacturing, Toyota production system, all that stuff now is sort of what then got re-exported back to the US. And so he came back and tried to then teach them uh, again uh, here. But a lot of the thinking of, of Deming and uh, Russ Eikhoff uh, as well, a lot of these systems thinkers of like middle 20th century, I think, from, from Second World War on to the 80s. Um, they've talked a lot about these things. Um, Deming, I don't think, has like a definitive book. I'm sure there's a lot of books out there on him. Uh, but just looking at some quotes from Deming just and, and, and Eggoff as well, uh, and just finding, you know, almost anything that they've written is probably in that, in that same vein. Um, just 
tells you what their critiques were uh, of the uh, ways that we run our companies. And they were pointing to ways to do things better. I think where they uh, failed, and, and I feel really stupid saying that because they made just incredible gobs of progress, is in pulling it all together in a, in a sort of a coherent uh, way, like how to run a company. Uh, but I think that's partly because that had not been, you know, we don't, we, they didn't have a complete answer. Uh, and part maybe because the technology that was available then maybe did not enable the answer. But um, I guess that's what I'm trying to, <laughs> to resolve. Um, and if we, uh, if you share uh, the link to the Substack uh, about uh, Belena's methods, uh, we will continue to write in that Substack uh, called Urovoros um, dot Substack.com. Uh, we're going to continue to write things in that vein as we uh, as we continue to either publish things that we're already doing or uh, you know grapple with new new problems we haven't gone into yet and, and sort of discuss that yeah i'll be sure to link to that in the uh episode description in the show notes um but anyways alex thank you for your time um this is a really interesting conversation i look forward to to following you uh on the internet great thanks uh good chatting.